Mark chapter 5, blazing into a new chapter this morning. Let me read our passage before we begin today. Hear the word of the Lord. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how much he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is God's inerrant word. May he bless what we've read, and let's stop and ask for his help before we go any further today. Heavenly Father, we do ask for clear minds and hearts to understand this account in Mark's gospel. Fill us afresh with your spirit. Uh, may he open our eyes to see and our ears to hear, uh, Lord God, your truth. And, and the, Father, help us to see Jesus, your Son, clearly and powerfully in this account. Strengthen me to preach clearly, clear my mind and heart, strengthen my voice. And Savior, we entrust ourselves to you for the upcoming time. Uh, change us and transform us with your holy word, Savior, we pray in your name. Amen. With the exception of Job, uh, there is probably no person in the Bible more miserable than the man described in these verses. Uh, that's the opinion of Dr. R.C. Sproul, and I believe he's correct. In his commentary on Mark, 
He says this, in all of scripture I can think of only one person whose misery rivals that of this man, Job, whose account, of course, we have in the book of Job. So as Jesus and his disciples reach the other side of the Sea of Galilee, they immediately encounter this miserable man. And Mark begins this account describing his misery in verses 1 through 5. And he, in this uh, first part of Mark's account, he gives us three reasons for the misery of this man. And the first is that uh, he lives in isolation. Uh, he is forced to live in isolation from the rest of the village. Verse 1 tells us this, they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. And so here we see for the first time that uh, Jesus, uh, in Mark's account at least, Jesus leaves this region of Galilee and travels across the Sea of Galilee into this region called Decapolis, which stretches all over through this colored gray area. We'll see him uh, up here in what's labeled Gergasa as we zoom in just a bit. You recall last week they were traveling across the Sea of Galilee where they encountered a large or a great windstorm. And this is um, intended to um, Mark presents this as happening the very next morning as they finish their journey across the sea. This is the next thing that takes place. Stepping on shore here in Decapolis, in, in this region, uh, they immediately encounter a demonized man, as verse 2 tells us. When Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. To begin with, Mark says that he has an unclean spirit. Uh, later in our passage, he's described as demon-possessed. That means that he was under the power and influence of an evil spirit or demon. And notice where he lives. At the end of verse 2, it says, There met him out of the tombs. And verse 3 begins, he lived among the tombs. Because of his condition, the village had driven him out and forced him to live on the outskirts of town where he found shelter in caves that were uh, used as uh, burial sites. Uh, caves like this, caves used as tombs, have been discovered on the eastern shore of uh, the Sea of Galilee in a, a village called Kersa on the eastern so, uh, shore of the lake. It's, it's known for its cave tombs and steep hills just like the ones described before us. So driven out of town, he was forced to live in isolation in these cave tombs near the shore. The reason for his ministry is, um, excuse me, misery is because he's forced to live in isolation. He's isolated from his village. He's, uh, any family, any friends he had uh, would be lost to him for the time being. Mark goes on to, to name another reason for his ministry. Not only is he miserable because of his isolation, goes further and, and says he's miserable because of his chains. Look at verse 3 with me again. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. Uh, 
look at verse 3. Please notice the word anymore. He's not bound with a chain now, but he had been at one time. Uh, apparently, um, the demon influence uh, and control of him uh, drove him to wild and uncontrollable behavior. And, and the townspeople, rightly so, were afraid of him. Not only did they force him to live outside of town in isolation, they also bound and chained him there. It was, a, 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 for a time, a dungeon-like existence for this man chained uh, near one of these tombs to control his uncontrollable and sometimes violent behavior. But Mark tells us he's no longer chained. We're not, we don't know exactly why. We can make a fairly good guess that uh, we learn later that more demons come to take position, uh, possession of him. And because of this, chains are no longer effective. Verse 4 says, For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. This is, this is not a Marvel uh, movie. This is not a comic book. This is real life. And this is recorded for us as a historical event in Scripture. And I, I just want you to pause and think of what this would have required. This man wrenched his chains apart and tore off his shackles because so great was his strength because of these demons that had come uh, to take possession of him. And while he could no longer be bound with actual, physical, tangible chains, he still could not break the chains that kept him enslaved to sin and his master, the devil. And while every non-Christian isn't possessed by a demon, everyone who has not been set free from sin by Jesus Christ shares the same master as this man. This is what God's word tells us in Ephesians 2 that we just read a moment ago. It said, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan, our adversary, the devil. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, by nature, children of wrath, children deserving wrath, like the rest of mankind. Before we came to put our faith in the atoning death of Christ, the word of God says that you and I were slaves to sin, like this man, bound with chains we, he could not see. Listen to God's word in Romans 6. But thanks be to God that you who once, uh, you who were once slaves of sin have become uh, obedient from the heart. And then uh, Romans 6.20, for when you were slaves of sin. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson 
draws this conclusion. Not all men are demon-possessed, yet by nature all men are ruled by dark and sinister forces. I wonder if you believe that's true. I wonder if you believe that's offensive. Think of what he says. Not all men are demon-possessed, yet by nature all men are ruled by dark and sinister forces. And that would come across as highly offensive to, to some people in our culture, I think, because you know how much we value our individual autonomy, our, our ability to do whatever we feel like doing. And some might protest, I'm not a slave to anyone. I don't, I don't follow anyone's bidding. I do what I want to do. And yet experience reveals that we can't stop doing the things we hate. And perhaps we don't even hate what we're doing, but enthusiastically pursue activities that God's word describes as sin. We always hear um, people in our culture talking about being the best you you can be, uh, uh, having better natures, and yet experience shows us that we always tumble back into, into old habits and, and often enthusiastically pursue things that are described as wrong in the word of God. So you might not be demon-possessed, but by nature, friend, you're ruled by dark and sinister forces. You're a slave to sin outside of knowing Christ. And I wonder if you believe that. But when we turn from sin to trust in Christ's payment for sin on the cross... God's word says we're freed from this slavery to sin and slavery to our enemy. God's word says this also in Romans 6, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And then in verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. In reality, there are only two choices. You are either a slave to sin, which leads to death and eternal punishment, or you're a slave to Christ, which leads to righteousness and eternal life. There is no middle. It's either or. Listen to Paul once more. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. There's no, there's no third option, friends. It's either one or the other. You're a slave of, of sin or you're a slave of Christ and a slave uh, of Christ that leads to eternal life. So whose slave are you? Who are you enslaved to this morning? I pray that you can gladly acknowledge I'm a slave of Christ. 
and the benefits are outstanding. And he's given me life and freedom from sin, although I still struggle. I know actual freedom from sin. This morning, you can end your slavery to sin right here by acknowledging your slavery, by admitting, in fact, yes, I am a slave, and by turning your back on it, and by trusting in Christ's atoning death on the cross that paid for sin. That frees you from slavery to sin, frees you from slavery to our adversary, the devil, makes you a slave of Jesus Christ who says his yoke is easy and his burden is light, who promises light and life and joy in serving him. This man has never experienced this. He is yet enslaved, even though he's not wearing physical and tangible chains, he is still chained in his spirit. He is bound to sin. He is bound uh, to his master, the devil. And then the third reason for his ministry, and, and this might actually be a result of the first two, is his anguish. His condition leaves him in a state of utter despair. And we see this in verse 5. It says, Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Crying out refers to inarticulate screaming or, or even shrieking. And note that it says he was always crying out. Imagine through the night in the village at intervals, you could hear the man let out a blood-curdling scream, splitting the night and disrupting your sleep. And further, it says he was cutting himself. That term means to cut to pieces. His body perhaps had gashes and scars all over it from the demons attempting to distort the image of God in him or, or even destroy the image of God in him. It is a picture of anguish and complete hopelessness. Again, Sinclair Ferguson sums it up. He was destined to belong to a closed world of hopelessness, anguish, and despair. And so begin to begin with, uh, Mark describes his account by, uh, begins his account by describing the misery of this man under the control and influence of demons. And, and the three reasons that led to this condition is his isolation, his chains, literal and spiritual, and the anguish that this left him in. I, I, I have to agree with Dr. Sproul. In all of Scripture, I can think of only one person whose misery rivals that of this man, and that's Job. But for misery, we go on to might. And next, Mark presents us with the complete might of Jesus Christ over these forces, uh, spiritual forces of evil. And the might that we see on display in these next verses, his might has three characteristics to begin with. 
It is supreme might. There is no power greater than his. Look at verse 6 now. It says, And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? It's curious that these demons know exactly who he is almost instantaneously when all the humans in the Gospel of Mark have such a difficult time figuring out who Christ is, even the disciples. The demons in control of this man identified Jesus as Son of the Most High God. This is a title, Most High, that first appears in Genesis. Uh, Melchizedek, the priest, is identified as Priest of God Most High, which is the Hebrew name El Elyon. And that identifies God as the Supreme One, the Almighty uh, Dr. Sproul notes that this title, God Most High or Most High God, is actually borrowed from the Gentile culture. Uh, while non-Jewish people worshipped many different gods in many different locations, they clung to the idea that there was one supreme God ruling over the pantheon of gods that they worshipped. Uh, and that was a most high God whose power and authority surpassed the power of these other um, inferior deities. Of course, we don't agree with any of that, only with the fact that there is one and only God, and he is, of course, the most high God. There is nothing in the universe that can contest his power. And by calling Jesus Son of the Most High God, they're not saying he was an actual offspring. This is a, it's called a Hebraism, uh, to call somebody the son of someone. It meant that you were exactly like what you were the son of. Think of uh, um, James and John, sons of thunder. It, it, of course, they weren't the offspring of thunder. It's a figure of speech. It means that they were loud and boisterous and fierce and kind of in-your-face kind of people. Do you remember the time, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on this town? But what they mean is that Jesus shares the exact nature of the Most High God, that he's equal to the Most High God, that he shares the same attributes of the Most High God, including, including his omnipotence, that he is all-powerful, that he possesses all uh, power. And the reason they run and fall down before Christ is because they recognize him as the supreme one, that in himself he possesses all power and authority, and that as the son of the Most High God, there is none higher. It would have been terrifying to them. And so the first characteristic of his might is supreme might. Secondly, the second characteristic is that it is sovereign might. As the sovereign Lord Christ rules 
all things, including these demons, which is about to become very obvious. They can only do what Christ allows them to. Look at verse 7 with me, and let's continue there in the middle, uh, where the demons say, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Look at the posture of the demons. They adjure Christ. I know nobody knows what that word means. It means to solemnly or urgently request, to implore or beg. And then look down to verse 10. And he begged him earnestly. And then verse 12. And they begged him. And look how verse 13 begins. So he gave them permission. These demons realize who's standing in front of them. It is the one who created them and the one who holds supreme authority over them. And they ad adopt a posture of complete submission to his absolute rule, to his absolute sovereignty. They can do nothing without his permission. This is consistent with what we find in the first two chapters of Job. Satan could do nothing to Job without God's permission, which is so important for us to hear because we refer to Satan sometimes as that he is sovereign. That he can, he's roaming around this world system and doing whatever he wants to do. Is that true? That is absolutely false. Satan can do nothing without the express permission of God. Read Job 1 and 2. Martin Luther said, and I've shared with you, shared this with you about a million times, there is a devil, but it is God's devil, meaning God possesses him, holds his reign, holds him back. Satan is not sovereign, only Christ. And we see him display his sovereign might ruling all things, even these demons. And the third characteristic of his might is that it is compassionate. Boy, what an oxymoron, right? Compassionate might. Uh, by this, I mean that Christ exercises his might in a way that is completely passionate. Let me go back to verse 9, and, and let's begin reading there. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Dr. Sproul notes that a Roman legion was made up of 5,600 soldiers. Now, Mark's probably not using the word legion in that precise way. The word legion can also be used in a very general way to refer to a very large number of things. But what Mark is telling us is, is that this man is controlled by a very large number of demons, uh, possessed, if you will, by an out-and-out -out army of evil. So no wonder nobody can control him. Verse 10 goes on, And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000. 
rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. So to begin with, this is a, a stupendous display of power. It is a stupendous display of power. These evil spirits are no match for Christ. And he dispatches them with a word. You see that? This contest is no contest. It's, it's a farce is what it is. They cannot stand up to him at all. Every power and authority, visible and invisible, is under Christ's control. Paul describes this in Ephesians 1. Uh, he prayed that the Ephesians would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is talking about God the Father raising Christ in his power, seating him at his right hand, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Those are spiritual entities that he's describing there. Christ is far above all those. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he, the Father that is, put all things under his feet, Christ's feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Yet another display of Christ's supreme and sovereign might. These demons are absolutely of no contest to him. Going further, some have read these verses, the ones I just read to you, and have accused Jesus of waste and cruelty. 2,000 pigs, they say, were an extremely valuable commodity to this village, and some claim that their destruction displayed a profound lack of compassion on Christ's part. What were they to do now for food? There was a philosopher and atheist named Bertrand Russell, and he refers to this event, calling it a dreadful destruction, and one of the reasons why he did not become a Christian. And I'm certain that in this era, some would accuse Christ of cruelty to animals. After all, 2,000 pigs were harmed in the production of this miracle. But contrary to those spurious and questionable claims, the destruction of the pigs was actually a profound act of compassion on Christ's part. And if you and I lean toward one of those other opinions, it reveals how far out of step our thinking is with how God thinks and how Christ thinks. Because through this miracle, Jesus not only displays the supreme value of human life over animal life, but also the lengths to which he would go to redeem a single human from the power of the evil one. It's as if Jesus were saying through this, I will do anything, whatever it takes to redeem this man and rescue him from the power of the evil one. And of course, he would go on to pay a far greater price than this. 
when he died on the cross. The price of 2,000 pigs is incidental compared to the infinite value of him laying down his life. And he did that very thing to secure redemption for all those chosen by the Father before the foundation of the world. The display of his might in delivering this man was an act of compassionate might, delivering him from the power of the evil one. Friend, I want you to pause and think about this, that God, the Lord Jesus, displays his might in complete passion, uh, complete compassion towards you. Uh, Dane Ortland described it like this. Let me read you just a few sentences. When perfect power meets perfect compassion, we are free to fall into the arms of the Lord in quiet trust. He is powerful and thus able to deliver us. He is loving and thus wants to. This is the best of all possible worlds. This is a God who can be counted on unflinchingly. And we know for certain that this is who God is, both omnipotent and omnicompassionate because of the incarnation. In Jesus, we see God the Son triumphing over sin and death and hell with utter triumph and power Yet equally we see matchless love pouring out of heaven's heart. And he goes on to ask, are you in distress? You have great reason for comfort in Christ because Christ does act as the supreme ruler, the one with all authority. But friend, he acts with complete compassion, although it may not feel like it at the time. He has the power to save you. And he will save you because he wants to. The might is what Mark describes second. And we see that it's supreme might. We see that it's sovereign might. He rules all things. And we see lastly that it is, above all, it's compassionate might, which he displayed for the sake of a single man. Well, there's yet one more thing to see in Mark's account. He, he moves from um, the misery of this man to the might of Christ. And thirdly, we see the mixed response to this miracle. He goes on to describe two responses. And the first response is from the locals. And we find this in verse 14. Follow with me in verse 14. It says, The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that, that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. When the pigs were destroyed by the demons, the, the terrified herdsmen seems that they scatter everywhere, scatter in all directions, uh, telling everyone, 
what had happened. And this aroused their curiosity. The village, uh, those in the village and those in the surrounding area, they gathered to see what happened. They, they not only find Jesus, more importantly, they find this man who had been demonized and his condition. He's sitting. He's no longer uncontrollable. He's clothed, indicating he was previously unclothed. And in his right mind, he's no longer screaming and shrieking. The legion of demons has been expelled, and, and the man, probably newly converted is what this indicates, appeared in a way that shocked them. And, and it shocked them because they knew the kind of strength it took to subdue him, because they had done it. And to restrain him. Because they had restrained him. And they, they see this man who had succeeded in subduing and quieting this man. And they know that they're in the presence of, of supernatural power. And they're frightened. They're terrified. It's the very same word Mark used to describe the disciples' fear after Jesus quieted the storm. And they, they're frightened because they know that someone with strength far greater than they can imagine was standing in front of them. And like the disciples in the last chapter, they too are gripped with holy fear in the presence of Christ. Listen to Dr. Spruill comment, like the disciples in the boat, these people were confronted by the presence of the holy when the Holy One is manifest in the midst of unholy people, the only appropriate human response is dread. And because of their fear, they ask Jesus to please leave. And verse 16 uh, expresses this. And, and those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they, they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. They, they've seen what he did, and, and they just want to be left alone. Please leave. And in response, and probably the saddest part of this account, is he grants their request, and he leaves them. So we see this response from the locals who ask him to leave, but the other response, and, and a polar opposite, comes from the man who'd been freed. Look at his response in verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, Jesus, that is, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. What a contrast. His great desire was to stay with Jesus, which is the proper response uh, and desire of every genuine follower of Jesus. But Jesus turns him down in verse 19, and he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Instead of allowing him to come along, he, he calls him to stay. He calls him to a lonely ministry and sends him back home to tell his friends. And since Jesus was no longer welcome, this was his way of establishing an ongoing witness in this very needy area. 
and, and note what the man is called to do. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. You might not consider yourself to be very skilled uh, in sharing the gospel with someone. You always forget what verse you're supposed to use and you can't remember exactly how the bridge goes and you have people on the yellow brick road before you know it and it just gets all tangled in your mind. But hasn't the Lord done something for you? How much has the Lord done for you? Do you think you could just talk about that? And, you know, knowing a couple verses is helpful, but it's not absolutely required. I mean, it's not in the Bible. Can you tell people what the Lord has done for you? How he's helped you? Do you, do you think you could just share that? And has he had mercy on you, freeing you from the power of the evil one, freeing you for sin, do you, do you, freeing you from sin? Do you think you could talk about that? And just tell people what you were stuck in and how God freed you from doing that? That's what he, he's called to do. And look at how he responds to this in verse 20. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled, are you the demon-possessed man? And you are talking to me in front of me with your clothes on? No wonder they marveled. You don't have to have a, an account like that probably be better if you didn't. People just need to hear what God's done, done in your life and how he had mercy on you. It, it seems that he did a pretty good job because a couple chapters later, Jesus comes back to Decapolis and, and there are people who bring him a deaf man confident that Jesus could heal him. Where did they hear that? That Jesus could heal and deliver? Maybe it's our guy. So Jesus gets a mixed response. The locals are frightened, but the man who wants to go with is sent home. Sinclair Ferguson uh, comments that people still tend to respond in these same two ways. Do you want to go with Jesus or do you want Jesus to go? So why did the Holy Spirit include this event in the gospel accounts? And what are you and I supposed to take away from Mark's account this morning? What value does this passage have for you and me here today? I am certain that this account is not, N-O-T not, not included to provide us with a handbook on casting out demons. Did you hear that? Not included to give us a handbook on casting out demons. And perhaps like me, you've heard of some of the things you're supposed to do when you encounter a person who seems to be controlled by a demon, certain things you should say, certain things you should do. I am positive this is not a manual on how to cast out demons. 
I only know of one place in the Bible that tells us how to oppose um, evil spiritual powers, and that is Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Put on the full armor of God, and casting out demons is not among the weapons listed. Just, just an observation. No, I don't believe this gives us a manual on how to cast out demons. And nor, N-O-R, nor do I believe that the Holy Spirit included this account to arouse your interest in demons and demonology. And that does happen at times. In fact, I believe the exact opposite thing is intended. And if we walk away from this more interested in demons than Christ, we are definitely reading this the wrong way. Certainly, demons exist. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 tells us they do, but we should take care to be more curious about Christ than demons. Don't go out and buy a book to find out how demons work. Don't. Please don't. Stick with Ephesians 6, 10 to 12. God's word fully equips you it promises that in 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17. You don't need a seminar. You just need to obey what the word tells you to do. And it calls you to pray. And it does not call you to talk back to the devil. Where did we get the idea that we're supposed to talk to the devil? We're called to cry out to God. C.S. Lewis once wisely said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. That is brilliant. I'll read it again in case you were asleep. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. They are real. That's no joke. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. That's C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters. I believe that the Holy Spirit included this event to increase our understanding of the deity, majesty, and power of Christ. That's why... I think this is here. I'm borrowing from R.C. again uh, to increase our understanding of the deity, majesty, and power of Christ. Jesus is not in a tug of war with our adversary, the devil. Satan is not sovereign to do as he pleases. Only Jesus is. Sometimes I believe we give Satan too much credit believe that he has too much power over us and too much control over things. But what this passage teaches is that Jesus Christ towers over our adversary. He is the son of the most high God. He is the supreme one. He has authority over all things and his power cannot be contested. It's no contest. And while the Bible says that we wrestle with principalities and powers in Ephesians 6, while the Bible says that we wrestle with principalities and powers, Christ doesn't. Amen. 
Christ doesn't. And like I said, the meeting between Jesus and these demons turns out to be turns out to be a farce. There is no contest between Jesus, Son of the Most High God, who towers over these spirits with supreme authority and power and compassion. Let's pray. Savior, forgive us for low thoughts of you. Please forgive us for ever thinking that Satan was equal to your power and authority. It's just not true. He is not sovereign, and we acknowledge you, Christ Jesus, as the Son of the Most High. You are sovereign. You share uh, complete omnipotence, complete power with your Father. You, um, you exercise your might toward us with compassion. And we are grateful that you are not a despot who rules his creatures with a whip and chain, but Savior, that you rule us in compassion, that you proved it by laying down your life on the cross, pouring out your love for us. Savior, help us to trust you. Help us here struggling to know that we can commit ourselves to a God like you who does possess all might, but is also compassionate. Jesus, we love you. Grow our love for you. Grow our understanding of your supreme majesty and your deity, Savior. We ask in your precious name. Amen.